Hey everyone, welcome to Reformed Podmatics, hosted by the pastors of Almond Valley Christian Reformed Church in Ripon, California. It's Pastor Mark Van Dyke and Pastor Zach Dewey, and this podcast exists to promote the vibrant, biblical, and historically informed face of Reformed theology, both in our context and beyond. Yeah, and I'm Pastor Zach. And um, we have kind of a different plan for chapel, maybe, than what normally happens at a chapel. Uh, Obviously, there are two of us, and so that's different right off the bat. Um, But we actually are recording a podcast right now, and uh, we're going to put the talk that we give, the conversation that we share, onto our podcast. And so um, the reason is not just so that you guys could maybe look back on it someday if you want to uh, review a little bit of what we talked about, but we want to share what we have been studying and thinking about with uh, people in uh, our church, uh, Ammon Valley, but also our friends and uh, the people who follow us sort of out there in the virtual world. And so the podcast is called Reformed Podmatics, and uh, that's a bit of a play on words of a great, great series of books called Reformed Dogmatics. And so you can already under, start to understand there that there's some theology that we talk about. We talk about the Bible, um, how God has worked in the scriptures and in our lives and uh, sort of what that looks like today. So yeah, we are pastors after all, so yep. that's what we do. <laughs> if we were talking about something else, we would probably be uh, talking about things we had no idea or no business talking about. Right, and so... Um, we are recording a podcast right now, and um, anyways, we'll put that out there, and maybe uh, you guys could follow. I know some kids in, in our youth group already do, but um, before we get into that, let's pray. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Lord God, our Father, you are the King of the universe. You spoke, and this world, and everything that you have made into being and we praise you and worship you for your wonderful work of creation we praise you and thank you for making not just the world but making each of us each person in this auditorium is fearfully and wonderfully made you've knit us together you've given us personalities talents abilities and so lord we praise you for how you've made us. We praise you also for sending your own son to die and redeem us, to be risen from the dead. Thank you for your wonderful plan of salvation. We pray that we would grow in knowledge of it this morning. God, we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit in power into this place, into our hearts and minds. God, we pray that our words would not just be shared with these students and teachers in word, but also with the spirits working and in power so that they would produce conviction, that they would produce increased faith. And God, we pray that you would minister to us in this time through your word and spirit as only you can. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. So our topic today that we wanted to talk with you about is um, kind of taken from a, a part of a Bible verse in the book of Zechariah. And uh, the, talk is a question, the title of the talk is a question, who despises the day of small things? Who despises the day of small things? And uh, the purpose for our talk this morning is to give you some examples from scripture and to give you some examples from church history of ways that God does, seem, does things that seem small from a worldly perspective that actually have a huge impact in uh, salvation history and even in world history. And so our goal really this morning is to encourage you. I know that there are times when um, I was a young person um, even still times today as a pastor, when I feel like I can only do a small thing, I can only do, um, I can only change what is right in front of me, I can't change what is happening in our world that seems to be going so wrong at some times, but um, what we want to come with today is a message of hope and encouragement that those who focus on um, seemingly small things from a worldly perspective are actually very much doing the will of God. Yeah, something that's always pitched to young people in particular is this idea that you must all be world changers. You must all do big things for God, big things for the kingdom of God. And so you must uh, accrue some sort of following online. You must have thousands of people uh, liking your posts or watching your YouTube videos or whatever it may be in order to make a difference for the world. Mm -hmm. And so there's this heightened expectation for you to do big things, uh, but we think that there's maybe something to be said about doing small acts of obedience and faithfulness to God. Yeah, and so that, one of the appeals there is of course the sporting world as well, right? It's good to achieve success in sports, but uh, Christians especially should have our eyes open at times to the lure of the spectacular and how the sports world very much feeds into that, and if we all of a sudden become obsessed with being spectacular and doing things that are so attractive and impressive in a worldly sense, all of a sudden that starts to trickle into how we think about faith and how we think God should be acting, and if it's not an amazing revival and an exciting, thrilling ministry, then all of a sudden it starts to become less attractive to us. And so our question is, who despises the day of small things, which comes from Zechariah 4, and I'm going to read to you from Zechariah 4, but I want to set the stage a little bit of um, what Zechariah is talking about in this text. So um, in our church recently, I preached through the book of Ezra, and if you know anything about the book of Ezra, it's a story of some people who are returning from exile in Babylon, and uh, what had happened was the people of God were conquered by the Babylonians. And so the Babylonians come in through uh, Israel and Judah. They totally destroy the city of Jerusalem. And in doing so, they also destroy the temple. And they take all of the able-bodied people uh, as servants, essentially slaves, to Babylon. And so when um, Cyrus becomes king of Persia, he decides he's going to free these slaves and they're allowed to go back to their home um, which has essentially been reduced to rubble. And so they return to Jerusalem, and they set about right away 
first they rebuild an altar, and they start worshiping God and making sacrifices to him there, and then they start rebuilding the temple as well. And Zerubbabel is a a long name of a guy who was one of the leaders of those exiles who came back. And they start rebuilding the temple, and people start freaking out. They're actually wailing and crying during worship because they're saying this temple is not as glorious as the previous one. Those who were uh, quite a bit older, who had remembered how great that first temple was, um, were, were grieving and lamenting and wailing because this temple did not match the former temple in its glory. And so um, Zechariah is a prophet who comes along and he has a word of prophecy for those people who are discouraged because this temple isn't as glorious as the first one. So he says in Zechariah 4, starting at verse 6, So the Lord said to me, this is what the, the word of the Lord is to Zerubbabel, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. So he's saying it might not look impressive now. It might not be powerful in a worldly sense. You might not be powerful in a worldly sense now, Israel. But by my spirit, I'm going to bless you and work through you. And so continuing, what are you, O mighty mountain, before Zerubbabel? You will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. So there's the prophecy that they will turn and value this work of Zerubbabel in rebuilding the temple. Then the word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands will also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Who despises the day of small things? Men will rejoice when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. Who despises the day of small things? And so it seems like things are starting off in kind of a small way. Um, Progress would have been slow. Uh, They had some pretty amazing things from the Babylonian treasury that they brought back with them, and yet it just wasn't the same as that first temple and all its gold and all its expensive cloth and and even um, in the sense that they had of the presence of God in that place. So Zechariah and also the prophet Haggai, he preaches to the same people, they come along and they challenge the Jews to value this day-by-day work that God has set before them to do. Haggai, actually, one of the main themes of his prophecy is get to work. And uh, he says that a few times throughout his, his prophecy. He says, yeah, it might not look so amazing right now, but keep working. Um, the phrase that some people might use today is keep your, your hand to the plow or your, your nose to the grindstone. And, um, and so that, that's the message that they come to give. Don't despise s- slow progress. <laughs> Don't despise small things, but do that which God has set before you to do. Yeah, it's sort of like you could imagine Levi's Stadium, if you're a 49ers fan, gets demolished and then people begin to rebuild it. And I know it's not going to be what it once was in its former glory. It's going to be smaller. It's going to be more humble. Mm-hmm. And so you can imagine the discouragement that they must have felt uh, working slowly to rebuild this, this temple, uh, knowing that it's not going to be returned fully to its, its former glory, but that it will be a smaller and much more humble mm-hmm. new temple. Yeah, and um, part of the promise, too, for Israel is that this temple will 
will be a place where they can worship, and it will be a place where they can hear the word of God. And so in that sense, it is just as valuable as the former temple, even though the first temple would have looked more impressive. And so you can look all throughout scripture and find examples where the people of God are called to do something um, what seems small, but actually God uses it uh, to exponentially bless not just his people, but even the world. Um, we could just start with thinking about the ministry of Jesus Christ and that his, his birth, the very beginning of his life on earth, was a humble birth. And so we can apply that question from Zechariah to the life of Jesus. Who despises the day of small things where shepherds came and um, worshipped Jesus, where um, angels heralded his, his glory out in the fields to some uh, some dirty shepherds. Jesus is born, of, of course, in humility, placed in a manger. And then all throughout his life, it, he has a spectacular ministry because of the miracles that he's doing and the amazing teaching that he's giving. But at the same time, Jesus is often um, pushing crowds away from him. This is something that boggles the mind a little bit in our modern Christian evangelical context, the Bible says often that Jesus was trying to escape from the crowds. And I once heard a pastor say, Jesus did not want crowds, he wanted congregations. And, and, and so while it might seem like a crowd would always be a great thing, Jesus came to do ministry to, to, to people and, and to, uh, to help people who were humble in heart and who valued him um, as the son of God that he was, instead of just for doing the amazing signs and miracles that he was doing. Yeah, that, that's something that theologians like to call the messianic secret, that Jesus is trying to, in a sense, keep the secret close to his chest, mm -hmm. that he is here and he has come. So he's not trying to just be the next biggest thing or trying to accrue a huge following of people, but he's more worried about the principles of the kingdom yeah. uh, and the kingdom itself being uh, inaugurated and started on earth. Yeah, and if we think of, if Jesus just would have wanted crowds, he would have not done some things that he did. So um, at the famous story of feeding the 5,000, uh, he, of course, had gathered a crowd. They were so interested in seeing this, um, or hearing from this teacher and seeing some miracles. And um, right after that, Jesus gives this very difficult teaching where he says, you need to eat my body and drink my blood. And then the Bible says, and many departed from him at that time. And so you can see that Jesus wasn't about just being as popular as possible at all costs. Um, we would say certainly he did not despise the day of small things. He valued uh, truth and um, the kingdom of God, of course, and uh, doing his father's will, even above appealing to 5,000 people. So um, you have this also exemplified in something that Jesus said about his kingdom and, and who was greatest in his kingdom. In Mark 9, verse 35, we would see, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and a servant of all. Is that what our world tells you? If anyone wants to be first, you must be a servant. And really the word could be slave. You must be a slave of all if you are going to be first in the kingdom of God. Of course, it's a, 
opposite message of what we so often hear from social media influencers and from YouTube personalities, from political figures. Um, in God's kingdom, we're called to be servants and to value small things. Yeah, it's, we live in a dog-eat-dog world, <laughs> as they say, and this pushes against that, what yeah. Jesus says here. Yeah, so we see this also in the church as well, yeah. where um, what God calls the church to do is often very simple. To preach the gospel, to love our neighbors, to uh, celebrate the sacraments, um, to spend time in fellowship with one another. That just means something as simple as uh, going out for coffee with your friends and encouraging them and listening to them. Um, that would be an example of one of those small things that God calls us to do that uh, might not seem like it's changing the world, but it's what God has set before us to do today. What about the book of Acts um, and about how it's often said mm. that the people in the book of Acts are so radical, the church is growing, you yeah. know, a lot. There's a lot of conversions happening, people being baptized. What do you say about that? Yeah, so valuing small things doesn't necessarily mean that God will always do small things. Like there are, there are times, of course, in all of scripture from Genesis to Revelation where there are spectacular things happening. I think the difference in our approach as Christians, this is not just for pastors, of course, it's for all of you students, is to, um, to value what God is doing instead of saying, unless God does this and brings a charismatic, amazing Holy Spirit revival, then it's not good enough for me. And yeah. so while God occasionally will bring uh, miraculous uh, state-changing revival, nation-changing revival. This has happened in the past. Um, to expect that is to sort of put, I would say, even limits on God. Hmm. I don't know if it also fits with the picture given in Acts. When you read Acts closely, hmm. you get the sense that there's a lot of ordinary, day-to-day, -day, yep. slow, little acts of faithfulness that are taking place all throughout. And in fact, in our tradition as Reformed pastors or Christians, um, we we often talk a lot about what's called the ordinary means of grace. The ordinary means of grace, which comes from Acts chapter 2, verse 42, where it says this, and they, that is these new Christians, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. So there's these four things. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, we could say the sacraments, and to the prayers. These little things that they knew would be world-changing uh, in time to come. They devoted themselves to them, to listening to the apostles' teaching. So listening to the word of God being taught. Uh, sharing in fellowship. A lot of times we, we talk about how they were uh, living in house churches. They were worshiping in house churches. Um, and so something that I think often gets overlooked today is the value of spending time with one another face-to-face. -face. Uh, maybe having a friend over to your house. Uh, maybe when you're adults, having people over to your house. Mm -hmm. There's a good book that I read a couple years ago called The Gospel Comes with a House Key by a lady named Rosaria Butterfield, um, who herself has a very fascinating story. But the book is all about the power of welcoming people into your home. That's why mm -hmm. it's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. But she goes on to explain has been a very changing, a neighborhood changing thing for her as her house has become sort of a beacon of light in the neighborhood. 
People know they can come whenever they have anything to talk about or they have any needs, if they need eggs or flour or whatever it may be, and how this has created an environment where people, where people, people know that they're going to be loved by this family. Mm. Uh, and so little things like this can be extraordinary, mm. although that we would see them as ordinary. And to prayer, how many of us are de- dedicated to the day-in and day-out routine and rhythm of prayer and devotion and Bible reading? Uh, this is something that is so often overlooked as being such a small thing that it's not really worth your time. Uh, but I assure you that over years and years of prayer and reading, you will grow and you will change and be transformed. Yeah, and um, that Rosaria Butterfield is a great example because that's how she became a Christian as the pastor um, ran into her at, I think it was like a protest or something like that. Um, and he wrote, uh, responded to a letter she yeah, wrote. That's right. That's yeah. right. He responded to a letter she wrote in the paper and um, just invited her into his house. And she became a Christian through that. It wasn't because she went to some big tent revival and it, no, it, it happened over time through a relationship where she was hearing the gospel eloquently, faithfully, wisely presented to her and the spirit moved in her heart and uh, she was born again. Um, We could also see this in Jesus' own teaching in Matthew 17 where he says, I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. And so we like to jump to the application that Jesus gives, which is you can move a mountain. Wow, that sounds awesome. That would be so great if we could have faith that would actually see something like that happening in our world but what does jesus start with you need faith as small as a mustard seed or or if you only have a little faith um, in this living god who does amazing things um, there will be amazing things happening around you and our world might not say they're amazing but hearts and minds will be changed and people will be drawn to the living god One thing that this teaching of not despising the day of small things will hopefully help all of you with is um, stirring up within you more contentment with the small things that God provides or that he calls for us to do. Um, I know that you're all in the phase of life where you have dreams about how your life is going to go, and that's great. Um, Dreams about uh, sports or music or Uh, career types of things, um, even social kinds of things that you want to participate in, whether that's uh, college or after after high school and college, getting married and having a family. And each of these are worthwhile kinds of things to think about. But if we expect and even demand from God that they would be spectacular, um, often it is the case that we'll find ourselves setting us up for discontentment right now until we get that thing just like we want it to be someday. And so Proverbs 30 deals with this, where um, Solomon is teaching his son uh, what he should value in life. And he says, two things I ask of you, this is to the Lord, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying and give me neither poverty nor riches. Right. So those extremes are what Solomon is, is saying, I, I hope are, aren't the experience for me. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal 
and profane the name of my God. And so uh, it can be a very strong pull to seek only that which is perfect, only that which is spectacular, only that which is exciting and thrilling in your spiritual experiences, in your social life, um, through social media. But God calls us at times to be content with daily bread. Yeah, one of the interesting polarities here is the call towards godly ambition and godly contentment. Mm -hmm. How do we navigate between those two things, right? As Christians, we want to have godly ambition. We want to have goals and dreams and hopes Mm -hmm. and be working towards something and having meaning and not just thinking, ah, nothing matters. I'm just going to, you know, waste my time away. I'm just going to play video games all day or or whatever, or spend time on, on Instagram all day, just yep. scrolling through posts. Kind of using contentment as an excuse for mediocrity. Yeah, you might, yes. yeah, exactly. You might use your contentment or this idea of, oh, I should be content, so then I should actually just be mediocre and be okay with never striving towards anything. And so that's an interesting balance to think about. Ambition and good ambition, there's bad ambition too. You can have bad ambitions. It mm. depends on what you're working towards, what your goals are but also having good godly contentment where you're content with the everyday little things. Um, going back to th- your sports uh, idea, uh, you can use that as a good illustration for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the best athletes get th- to their points in their career where they are having great success because of the hours and hours of extra work outside practice that they put into it. Uh, to be better than everyone else. Uh, if you've watched the Michael Jordan documentary, you've probably noticed this. I've recently been getting into the Premier League, the English Soccer League, and one of my favorite players is Harry Kane, who everybody always said was never going to amount to anything. Mm. He was kind of this overweight kid. He was bigger than most others, was slow. Mm. But he has been known throughout his career as being the hardest worker probably in the world of soccer and it has taken him to the top. He's one of the top like three strikers in the world. And they would say he doesn't have much natural talent, but the man is a beast. He works harder than everyone. Mm-hmm. Every day he is just chipping away and making himself incrementally better with slow little acts of practice and of trying to be uh, learning the game more. And he's, he has made himself uh, to be this superstar just by working hard at the small things. Well, and, and that's a drawing that back to what happens in the book of Acts in the early church, where you have people praying, gathering together, studying the words of the apostles, and occasionally that explodes into something very impressive. Um, Of course, at the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people come to the Lord and and are born again in that day, Um, but then what do they go back to? They don't expect that the next day there's going to be 3,000 more, and the next day, that, that isn't the new normal. But instead, they they go back to what God calls them to, gathering, um, listening to preaching, celebrating sacraments, things like that. So um, I would guess Harry Kane, after he scores a goal, doesn't expect that automatically they'll be happening now every time. He goes back to practice. Mm -hmm. And so, um, again, a, a good example of not despising the day of small things and remembering, you know, in his example, what kind of took him there. So um, one thing we do want to talk about is how this matters for how we use social media. Um, I know that there is immense pressure on young people to be amazing, right? To be perfect and to 
present yourself in your perfection to the world through Instagram, um, probably mostly Instagram for many of you that would probably be, I don't know, what are the TikTok. other social media? TikTok is another one. Snapchat. Yeah. Um, I don't know. YouTube, um, ho having the hopes and dreams of being like PewDiePie or Ninja or, um, you know, some of these people who have, they make $10 million a year. Dude Perfect is another example of this, of course. There's a whole and new term that you guys all know, which when I was in high school was not a term. It was a term was influencer. Yeah, that was nothing. People just go around calling <laughs> themselves influencers now, which is really interesting that they've gained such a big following that they consider themselves as being influencers to the rest of the world. It's just crazy. Yeah, and well, I think Dude Perfect is a, perf is a perfect example of, uh, <laughs> of what this looks like. So I like Dude Perfect. I like it that my little kids watch it. It's, these are Christian men. If you haven't seen the documentary, it's really good that I suggest to you. But um, I have, I've heard from another dad who has a uh, middle school student that his, uh, his young student, instead of shooting hoops, he just wants to do trick shots. Just go out and um, never learns the, how to dribble and how to shoot a free throw, but just goes out and is launching, uh, you know, basically throwing the ball towards the hoop instead of ever really learning how to shoot the ball. And what is the reason for this? He wants to be spectacular. Uh, Dude Perfect has 60 million YouTube followers. Just about all their videos have at least 12 or 15 million views. Some have 300 million views. And it's because it's so amazing and so exciting. And we know when our kids are watching Dude Perfect because we hear screaming all the time from the TV and from our kids. It's so amped up all the time that it is impacting, I believe, if we're not careful, it's impacting what we think the church should be like as well. Because well, let's be honest about that, how that will have an influence on what we hope to see happen, not just when we watch YouTube, but when we go to church. If it's not screaming and exciting and thrilling, well, then there could be even a question of if it was valuable or not. And uh, I sort of feel for the Dude Perfect guys because they've got to keep upping the ante. They've got to do things more spectacular the next day and the next day. And there's all this pressure to be spectacular. And I would guess they're great guys. And again, I don't fault anyone for watching Dude Perfect because they are what seems like strong believers. Yeah. But let's be aware of the impact that watching all this spectacular stuff will have on our daily impression of the value of what we're doing in the kingdom of God. Yeah, and seeing stuff just on Instagram, seeing other people's great lives, you know, they're on vacation doing this, or they just got this new gadget, or, you know, their house looks so amazing, and mm. your house doesn't. Uh, you get the feeling that you have to have, you have to strive towards the extraordinary, and you can really begin to get to a place where you no longer think it's important to fold your clothes, to do your chores, <laughs> to wash your dishes, yeah. dishes, and be faithful to honoring your father and mother in little things. Nobody likes that. Nobody thinks that that's important. Nobody thinks that these little acts of obedience to God mm. and to your fellow man are, are important or worthwhile anymore. And that's what's really sad. So we should probably wrap up in a minute here, but um, think of how this matters for what is happening in our world right now in the world of politics. Um, do you value small things as much as uh, the big things happening in our world, like the election that will happen on Tuesday, 
it can be so easy, just in the same way we get drawn towards dude perfect, we get drawn towards uh, po political commentating, and I would guess that many of you have parents who just consume huge amounts of political commentary. I believe that underneath the surface of that, that is a desire for the spectacular. And it is often a rejection of the small things that God wants us to do. So are we spending as much time in prayer as we are, and study of God's word, as we are watching political pundits argue um, in a very bombastic and spectacular way? Um, hopefully, no matter what happens in the election on Tuesday, uh, we would value the small things in the kingdom of God that are actually far more important things in the long run, even than this election. But yeah, whatever happens on November 3rd, your life should not change very much. Your rhythms should not yeah. change very much on November 4th. Yeah. Um, who knows what's going to happen? And it's interesting, as a youth pastor, I've never seen young people so interested in politics. Mm, yeah. I think growing up myself in the 90s and 2000s, it was interesting to hear people talk about politics, but really I didn't care. But now more and more, even you are thinking about it. But your life shouldn't change. There are the ordinary means of grace for you to fall back on. Uh, and so you, whatever happens with, with who's the president or whatever, mm. know that your calling is still the exact same the day after the election. And that is to engage in learning the apostles' teaching, sharing fellowship, breaking bread with other believers, and prayer. Yeah. And um, we'll conclude with a scripture verse from Colossians 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things.